What's going on, nerds? Welcome back to the Bad Christian Podcast. I'm going to get right to it. We got Jonathan Merritt on the show today, and he's terrific. He's a journalist. He came to our conference uh, last year, somebody that we respect the voice of and does some very thoughtful work and has a new book out. So we're going to talk to him in a little bit, and I'll get right to today's sponsors and tell you one more time, Emory's on tour. We're in Denver tonight, headed through to Texas, Arkansas, and Atlanta. Go to emorymusic.com. Come see us and O Sleeper on that. Today's show is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring website in America. Try ZipRecruiter for free by heading to ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. Today's show is also sponsored by Stamps.com. You can go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter the code badchristian. Enjoy $55 in free postage, free digital scale, and a four-week trial to Stamps.com and use the code badchristian. And also... And thank you guys for supporting our sponsors. It really means a lot. Today's show is also sponsored by Brooklinen. These are the best sheets I've ever slept on. You can get $20 off and free shipping. And when you use the promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com. Let's do it. Oh, hell yeah, God showed up. I don't give a shit what I put in my body. You don't ever fucking talk to me that way. <laughs> so if you've never done oral, then you're extra virgin. No, girl, it's my pleasure. I, I showed my dad my penis when I was 25 years old. You don't get more honest than that. Thrice, twice, twice. <laughs> I'm your host, Toby Morrell. On the mic is Joey Svensson and Silent Matt Carter. Well, Matt's mm-hmm. stupid. He Nobody is. wants to hear a damn thing that Matt has to say yeah. because he's dumb, he's vile. Uh, he has no integrity. Usually those words are harsh. It's very appropriate for stupid man. <laughs> right. Are we not? Are we not? Let me tell you something about the scientific method. I love it. <laughs> Shut <laughs> the fuck up. Teachers all need to be Shut shipped. your mouth. Teachers need to be shipped to Mars because they're worthless and they, they have no. My teacher one time made me sit in a corner. She no good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm telling you, that is so crazy. That is just, the, it's the craziest thing with that episode like i said i was embarrassed about the whole thing anyway you but should be i, I agree to it again. I was i know you. i'm more embarrassed as time goes on but i have promised you i just want to say a, a note to the people that have been sending me messages that i was surprised at this but i promise you there's never been anything i've ever done musically or talked about <laughs> on the podcast that has gotten me more private messages sent to me <laughs> than that episode probably uh, probably in agreement and disagreement yes now the Private messages are almost all agreement. agreement yep. Yeah, but uh, but but that's the thing about it. That's so crazy. Is like I didn't have any idea that it would make y'all be defensive or something. And I, I imagine it's a thing like I mean, I did a climate change things a couple weeks before where I was saying don't worry so much about carbon emissions, but let's you know I thought that would fire people up. I didn't hear a word. Nobody yep. cared. And um, 
this is like, whoa, this is a nerve. So there must all the people that feel similar to me must have had the same experience. Like you just don't, you just can't talk about yeah. it because you get killed. Well, and and the thing, it it it's really crazy. it really does boil down to that was a bad move on your part to start 100%, with cynicism. Hundred percent. That's what everybody says. But I, think, I was yeah, hundred percent agree. So it's just, that, but that's a bit. It's been really illuminating. I, it's like this underground cause. Like it's kind of really encouraging because there's so many people care about it. And it's amazing. I, I thought it was so you know? funny. You actually said teachers are not important at all. And then like 15 minutes later, he says, I haven't even said anything offensive yet. I haven't even started. I haven't said anything well, offensive. Yeah, whatever. Don't want to, no, it doesn't matter. I, I was, I just, I want to tell our listeners something. This is a, this is the, this is a father's heart okay. right now. Not the. You're not, not even talking to me and Matt. You're talking to, to that listener. Yeah, this, not the father's yeah. heart. My father's heart. There is those damn, I almost used the F word, but out of respect for Jonathan Merritt's listeners, those Facebook memories, they can be devastating. So (laughs) (laughs) my baby girl just turned 10, and so there's a 10-year-old memory. I mean, who would have ever thought there'd be something where you'd open your computer and a 10-year-old video memory pops up, but it is basically Rosa meeting her younger sister for the first time, my Rosa is now 12 years old, and this, she's about two, and it's the sweetest video of her holding her for the first time, seeing her for the first time, talking about her for the first time, and I've watched it probably like four or five times since it popped up, and it is deeply affecting me, and it's even affecting Matt, (laughs) (laughs) not only from the perspective of his kids, but also him thinking about his uh, daughters growing up and everything. But it is just, it's just crazy. You think it's more, it make, I mean, you're saying it's sad and sweet and you're saying it makes mortality makes you think you're going to die. Well, I just think of it when I see stuff like that, I just think, oh man, there's so many things that are, aren't coming back. Like like I've already gotten past that. Like you're like the next time something like that, maybe you can have maybe grandkids, but it won't be the same. Like every, like you are not going to be that scared when your kid has a grandkid, Uh, you you know, hopefully as long as everything health wise. But I mean, like when I see that stuff, I just go, oh man, it was such an amazing time. And I didn't, I wasn't even a, aware enough to yeah. enjoy it. I, right. Like when we had our kid, when, when Ruby saw Ike, all I was thinking was take care of Ruby. She, we'd moved to Seattle, all this stuff. And I was just doing all these things. I didn't take any time to go, oh my gosh, look at this. So it is neat that you have the video, but at the same time, that's never coming back. And and I'm just, so there's a few things left in this life, but that's, it's about over right. for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's crazy too, is at that age, they grow up so fast. And I, I don't, I don't want uh, one of my kids to hear this uh, out of context later because I, I think my kids are going to eventually go through all the bad Christian episodes. That's a, at least in my head. I think so. Maybe. Please, <laughs> they got be- they'll have better things. They're going to be do. like podcasting. They'll Never check out two or three episodes. <laughs> I get it. But one of my kids, I barely remember being a baby. It was so crazy in the Svensson household with the kids that we were producing. Yeah. I almost remember nothing. And it's just crazy because that 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 newborn phase, even the first year, it just happens yeah. so fast. It's it's just so unreal. you feel like you don't even possess the memories of one right. of them, as right? Much. Right. The pictures and the videos are very helpful because I almost don't even remember a thing. Yipes! Yeah, the whole thing it's it's, it's just weird when I see it. I think about well, I'll tell you the positive. Here's what I think is so cool about kid stuff and toddler stuff and like. You know, the specialness of a you, you, nobody really gives a shit about anybody else's kids, which right. is the bottom line. Right. Like, yeah, I agree. I put, with that. you know, you put your kids on Instagram and this is really just for you, and that's fine. Nobody really cares about your kids or wants to hear about them. But there's Disagree. something inherently special about 
yours. It's like so profound, and I said it before, but it's like an equalizer. You could be the poorest nothing villager in some place, and it's the same profoundness of looking at a a one-and-a-half-year-old glow of something they're experiencing, and it's your kid. That is, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, all, I mean, that is Everybody can have that, and it's one of the most people, rich people, uh, people that win Oscar awards, will still tell you that's their the most special thing in their life. And same for the, the you know people that have the least in the world, and it's the same. And the the best thing in the world, everybody can have. I guess I suppose everybody can't have it, but you know what I mean. It's a universal uh, thing. And I even would go so far as to say the elite and the privileged and the people that have all this other stuff. I, I would say like a movie star or something, but I actually think they appreciate it way less yeah. than an average person. You know what I mean? It's a really? private... Yeah, like I think, you know, just some celebrity that's like, my kid is my hero, but they're gone and they have other right. things. They have so many other things that they're concerned about and they kid's an accessory to some powerful professionals, you know? Yeah. Like you can, you can not even care that much about your own kid and it's the best thing in the world and it, it's a universal thing that everybody that has kids names it as the most profound thing. Yeah. So that's, that's a, a really weird... It's not. It's a, a nice design by God, or a real quick quirk of humanity over evolution that we've made to feel that so strongly. It's very. It amazing changed my life. It. it was really funny. Like before kids, no joke. I was pretty scared to fly, and then after kids, I didn't care anymore because it, it felt That's like the kid was the, yeah. the scariest thing ever. And I was like, "What am I worried about? This is yeah. like." You, you tell me that a professional is going to travel me across the country from South Carolina to Seattle. I trust him. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I'm making it. So it, right. I, like real fear went away and my like new fears entered. <laughs> so right. I was like, yeah. these are the real fears. Yeah. This stuff, ain't, we're, uh, turbulence, there ain't no yeah. real fear. Well, isn't, isn't it crazy? This is just such a crazy thought and it's a very sad thought, but I'm not going to go into sad mode. But the interview you. I did with a father who lost his son, only son, think about this. He said he lived his whole life since he had his uh, baby boy <clears throat> for 30 years or 25 years, he had fear that he would lose. That was his only fear that Dang. he would lose. And he says he has no fear anymore. Like, no. and that's not like a positive thing. He's not like, yeah, I have no fear, but he's just like, it's so weird. I don't the fear thing he feared the most happened. So. It happened. So there's nothing he really <sighs> fears. Isn't that crazy? Ooh. What? Yeah. Thanks for that. that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you heard it first. Hopefully you may be, you lose something that's super valuable to you, and you won't have fear anymore. That's how Pastor Joey recommends to losing, getting rid course in Pastor Joey, how to lose fear. I'm just fearful that our marriage is going down the drain. Well, I'll just lose it. <laughs> okay, Toby and Joey, it looks like we're about to do, according to my notes here, some twisted scripture in a second, which I'm always excited about. But first, I got to tell her about, about ZipRecruiter, which I'm glad to do. So I'd be surprised if anybody hasn't already used it because it's obviously really awesome and it's free for our users and everything. But hey, there's new people with new businesses and new hiring to do all the time. And I can't tell you how important it is how you do your hiring and who you get to work in, represent your business. And how about the fact that just they're people that you have to work with and you will be more satisfied when you work with top quality people. It'll just be inspiring to you and ZipRecruiter is a great way to find top quality people. Now, here's what I like about them the totally the best is uh, they actually, they're not just to aggregate different applications that other people fill out. They go out and find the best candidates and invite them to apply for your specific job. So you're getting something really, really good. It's a tech platform and they improve it all the time. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in the first day. So, you could be sitting on your ideal candidate for your job tomorrow. And with results like that, 
And so no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. You heard me right, for free at this exclusive web address. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. ZipRecruiter, smartest way to hire. All right. Well, I've got some scripture that I want to share with you guys. Yep, I sure do. Is it straight scripture or is it? All right, Toby, great job on that that intro, man. Really You're a genius. It. It's one of my favorite things I've ever written. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, let me ask you guys a question, or actually, let me just point out something. Imagine someone telling you something mm-hmm. that deeply affected you negatively throughout your childhood, throughout your high school, college days, into your early adulthood, and then you find out wasn't true. Kind of a bummer, right? Yeah. All right. Well, that's how I feel about. A lot of scriptures <laughs> about like the Bible and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, like and, the Bible. And, and and here's the thing: I'm not even talking about a lot of people. Just like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, you were taught to read it infallibly, and now you're seeing it differently. I'm not even talking about that. You don't even have to go too far. Um, you can take scripture as you know as fallible and maintain that belief, and it was still taught wrong. Here's a great example: One Thessalonians. 522, but I'm going to read a little bit before and afterwards. The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. I mean, he's laying it on. Lots of good things, lots of bad things to avoid, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. All right, so that translation is the NIV. A lot of people, you know, go with the NIV. Now, the King James version of that same line, it says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Mm-hmm. Now, take my Pentecostal background, and the word very is inserted by human beings. That's how I heard it. I heard pastors say, no, you got to avoid the very appearance the very of evil. Appearance I thought evil. that was the scripture. I was surprised yesterday when I looked it up. Whoa. The word very wasn't in there because I thought that was what was in there. So here is how that played out for me as a child because my parents were being taught the same sorts of things. Spring break, 1994, me and my friends went to the beach. We came back to the house to get refreshed and everything. Guess what we weren't allowed to do because my mom wasn't home. What? We could not go in the house. We had to get refreshed outside with the hose. Uh, we had to play out in the front yard in the spring break heat of Charleston, South Carolina, because we could not go into the house because it was mixed company, and that would appear to be evil because male and Golly. females going into the house. Wow. God knows they're having sex. If yeah. you see them going into the house, they're going and into the house. Anybody knows for you sex. knew you weren't going to get to have sex. <laughs> That's the same one that would say this the same way people use that verse of you can't go to Applebee's because they serve alcohol. Yes, right. Exactly. And you, just the appearance that if somebody sw- saw you walking into alcohol. Exactly. Yep. So this verse yep. basically avoid the very appearance of evil. Don't even appear like you're doing evil. Now let me read 
all the other translations. Yeah. Reject every kind of evil. Stay away from every kind of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. And don't have anything to do with evil. Avoid every kind of evil. Obviously, that is not what the verse is even teaching. And yet I abided by avoid even looking evil and you agreed with well it. into adulthood. Yeah. Well into adulthood. And now I'm like, all of that was not true. It was, I mean, it was it's not a even complete true. misunderstanding of the what the the. I mean, it's a it's, my youth pastor saw my girlfriend and I coming out of the movie theater. Asked what movie we saw. I told him Celtic Pride. It was PG thirteen. He looked at us like we were horrible, and it was because it appeared evil. We went into a PG thirteen movie. Good lord! Youth pastor it's at so a ab- camp yeah. basically reprimanded all the kids at a camp, hundreds that were wearing a Kurt Cobain t shirt. Or in a Jimi Hendrix t-shirt, and he literally said, these people died and went to hell not knowing Jesus. He said, and, and really pompously, he said, I just want to have a shirt that, that says Jesus Christ, year eight, 0 AD to 33 AD. People wearing Kurt Cobain shirts, he is in hell. Like that, it's appearance of evil. Oh, you listen to Nirvana, obviously. You appear, well, yeah. What other well, things do you do? But it's just the appearance thing is it, the and the fact that they put the very in that lets you know that it, it, it lets you know that they're being intellectually dishonest with the yes. scripture because they take that word because the adding very takes the first of all most people those most of those people don't use the King James they only use it when they get a word they like right. better they jump right. pop over to King James right. and then they even added something to make it sound like they know it's not doesn't really yeah. mean because it, otherwise it reads like avoid every avoid the appearance of evil like a point avoid the occurrence of evil like there's an appearance of evil like uh you know, somebody came up and offered me heroin. That would be an appearance of evil. Right. Right. The appearance of the heroin offer to me right. is what appeared, right. and I should reject that appearance. Not right. uh, don't carry around uh, baby powder because it looks like heroin. Yeah. Right. That's not what yeah. it means. Yeah. I mean, so I'll, I'll just give you two other examples, and one of them we've talked about before, the whole Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I have plans to prosper you. That's talking to Israel, and yet everyone says, nope, that applies to me personally. The big one, the one that all the athletes have tattooed on their arms, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People read that as whatever I decide to do, Christ is going to strengthen me, and I'll do it where it's actually saying, if Christ is strengthening me, strengthening me, then I can do all things. But you mm. don't get to choose when when Christ is strengthening you to do something. So sir, let's circle all the way back around to the appearance of evil. If that reading was true, then think about rich Christians that actually use that. Yeah. Oh, abo- avoid the appearance of evil. You this appear evil. You appear evil. I mean, you know how many times Jesus talks down to rich people and saying it's hard for them to enter the kingdom? And then lastly, it certainly disqualifies you from supporting Trump. With right, that. right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. uh, and lastly, Jesus did not avoid the appearance of evil. In fact, he didn't do so in such a way that it is written in the gospel that he came drinking. They called him a drunkard. He came uh, eating, eating and they called him a glutton. So people thought he was a sinner, and he didn't pay any mind to it. So it ju- it just it really is a very sobering thought for me. And I have told Priscilla that I there I am starting to have a healthy mourning of the life that I lost, given falsehood. Yeah, falsehood that was given to me, and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. But I didn't know any better. Yeah, I mean there was no advocate for me saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 come on." That guy's well intentioned, but you can't you can't buy that. And my parents, 
same thing. I mean, they were buying into it as well. I don't fault my parents for one second. My mom read Fundamentalist, and it depressed her because she said, I know I had a lot to do with that. I was like, Mom, you were receiving the same sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't no, blame that's, you. That's a good point. That's a good point. And that's a one-two combo punch with the, uh, you take that scripture and put it with stumbling block stuff, and you get that combination that makes me go crazy, which is the one where it's just like, well, I'm okay with it, and I understand this, right. but it's the these other people, these unnamed third-party right. invented weak people that your actions are destroying constantly, and I'm going to use that as a, a to be your authority and control your behavior. Right. That's what it boils right. down to is this is just a bludgeon people can use to control our people's behavior because that's what they love to do. Right. And so the uh, it's just it's just so in, interest, offensive interest, deeply. Yeah, interestingly enough, the the thing that a lot of fundamentalist Christians fault other progressive Christians for doing twisting scripture, guarantee you they've done more twisting throughout the years than any other Boom! person ever. <laughs> Joey, thank you. That was yep. a good one. You wow. got it. Oh, I love that twisted scripture almost as much as I love stamps.com. And you know why I love it? Because these days you can get almost anything on demand. Like Even like this podcast you're listening to right now with twisted scripture. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com. I use stamps.com basically almost every day. We love the service. It helps us save so much time and it's just so easy. I'm 42 years old. I'm not the best at uh, figuring stuff out. Stamps.com is so easy. There's almost nothing to figure out. It is just the best. With stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer and mail, and the mail carrier picks it up. Or if you have some big packages like me, you walk right into the post office, set it down, and leave. It is amazing. You don't have to wait in line. You don't have to do anything. At home, all you got to do is click, print, mail, and you're done. It couldn't be easier. So right now... If you use Bad Christian, use the code Bad Christian for this special offer. It includes up to fifty-five dollars free postage, a digital scale, and four week, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Here's let me say it one more time. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and use the code Bad Christian. That's stamps.com. Enter Bad Christian. Get that stuff. It's so good. What's up, man? Jonathan, what's going on? Hi, hi, hi. I do plan to shower at some point in this 48-hour period. <laughs> so you've been, you've been pretty busy lately. How have you been since the BC Con? Uh, it's been good. It's been good. I've been uh, uh, traveling a lot. That was a great event. How did you guys feel like it went? Well, it was, a, you know, we've talked about it at pretty good length, so I won't hype our conference how amazing it was and how amazing BCCon 2019 is going to be or anything, but it was incredible. <laughs> it was like a, I never had any idea that it would be as fun and natural and the people would like get along with each other and independently, uh -huh. you know, that whole thing of it. You know, it took everybody took care of themselves, and we were just kind of there to host, and it was it was yeah. amazing. And, and you the, you and were the, the highlight. It was awesome, and it was packed. Yeah, yeah, it was, and everybody thought that that your participation was so good. I wish you could have stayed the second day. We had some more fun after that, but so we'll see. We'll do we'll do it again in the future. We have you back if yeah. you want to come. I would love to. I'd love it. All right. So Joey uh, said the other day that you had a prophetic experience, and we I definitely want to hear about that that sounded that sounded really interesting because to me you're a guy and i want to talk about that in a little bit but to me i'm just uh we we think of you as somebody who's just 
got a really interesting needle that you thread from having what I would consider a really high journalistic integrity. And you go right after the issues, and you don't seem to play the games other people do. And I'm sure a lot of people think that you're you know, less of a spiritual guy or more of a social justice kind of guy, but then you come out with a book like this and have prophetic experiences and just are clearly a guy who really takes his faith and the faith of other people and the you know how we deal with this stuff seriously. Yeah, so that's, I, I don't that's think amazing. there's too many people that occupy a space in which Andy Stanley and someone like Rachel Held Evans, those two guys are paying attention to you and recommending your book. I mean, I, I really don't think there's too many people that have those two demographics paying attention. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, today, I just finished uh, an interview for, uh, I'm going to launch a podcast to go with this book, and I interviewed Beth Moore. And then I'm trying to coordinate getting Jen Hatmaker. So mm-hmm. it is interesting to see that kind of broad span. And maybe that's because I, I kind of still feel like I'm evangelical-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like I, I, I have so much in common with evangelicals and and a lot of my friends who are post-evangelical, and you know, you could name them, I don't have to name them, uh, they come across as kind of a little like bitter uh, mm, yeah. about, about evangelicalism. And, you know, even, even in the areas where I've departed, theologically or politically or, or uh, otherwise, I, I still have a lot of respect for evangelicals and I try to treat them fairly. And so I guess that makes me seem kind of trustworthy. People don't really know what to do with me. And that makes me seem at least safe for both sides. They feel like maybe they'll get a fair shake. That's a real important work to do. Let me ask you one specific question about how you navigate that. For instance, from my view, it would be reasonably easy for you to not want to have come to our conference to associate with us. I'm sure that some people... Didn't I saw people telling you you shouldn't? As a matter of fact, I wonder how do you how do you decide to navigate stuff like that? Yeah, we actually were a little worried that some some people were going to have to drop off the ticket because everybody's just so protective of what people think about them. Yeah, I had a lot of folks tell me I shouldn't and try to pressure me. And I had uh, there was another person who was at the conference who called me and said, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do?" And uh. I just oh shit! Like somebody else was calling you. Like, should we both bail on this thing? <laughs> yeah, oh my god! god. <laughs> so I was like, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person that like, uh, the, if you try to pressure me publicly to not do something, I'm going to do that thing because I'm not going to be bullied by the Christian Gestapo, and they they are they are out there trying to police folks from the left and the right. Mm-hmm. You know, no so. Doubt. Uh, I, I see that on both sides. And like, if that's the game you're going to play with me, it, you'll just lose. Because the second that you start kowtowing and bowing down, uh, they will multiply like bunny rabbits. And yep. they will all come after you and they'll police you. And then you can't say anything. Yep. So when now, people try to do that, they publicly call me out or try to shame me in public. They're just muted immediately. I don't, I'm not, I, I have no, I have zero tolerance for that. Now, do you see that as, like, personally, do you see that as a risky thing for you and your career? Uh, for me, I would say it's it sort of has become part of my brand. Yeah. Uh, the, and, what, integrity and, and trustworthiness and reliability? <laughs> oh, good one. Well, and having, <laughs> having, a, having a, a broad range of associations, 
being willing to say things that others are afraid to say, to ask questions that others are afraid to ask, to go to places that others would be afraid to go. You know, I mean, if if uh, Joel Osteen called me today and asked me to come sit on the front row of his church and hang out and uh, say a word, I'd probably do it. Uh, by the same token, if Nadia Boltz Weber or Matthew Vines or someone asked me to come to their event and say a word, I'd do it. Uh, I think for me, there's there's there are far too many people trying to police what other people are doing, where other people are going, who other people are associating with, and it's not. It to me, it's just a, a, an irrelevant. It's an irrelevant topic. Like I, I'll associate with just about just about anyone mm-hmm. though that i feel like that's the good work and you're right if you get down some road you're kind of trapped and locked in and stuff like that and it seems like everybody's kind of weaponizing uh the way people behave and language and speech itself which is what your book is about it's about language and linguistics which i was thrilled to get it and look over it, which i haven't read it yet but i'm really thrilled so thank you for sending it that the book goes so much into words and their meanings and how they're used how did you get inspired to, to write this book you know, it happened. Uh, it, it started a few uh, years ago. I had written three books by the time I was thirty, and thought like a thirty-year-old just doesn't have one hundred and fifty thousand words of wisdom to share with the world. That's just a fact, uh, and I certainly didn't. And so I just said the industry, the, the the publishing industry, tries to force authors to write a book every two years, every two years, every two years, and that's really unsustainable. So I just decided I'm not doing it. I'm mm-hmm. not writing another book until I feel like I have a message that's so important that I have to get it out. So about five years ago, I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City and ran into this really weird, unexpected language barrier where I could still speak English as well as I always could. You know, I could go down the street and have a conversation with somebody standing on the intersection. I could order a, uh, you know, a to- I could place a to-go order uh, to a cashier. But I could no longer speak God. Yeah, I, I was so crazy because New York City's evil and felt or something like that. It's a it great mission field because New York City's full of all atheist evil people, right? <laughs> okay. Well, we, listen, everybody's got their fair share of evil people. Maybe, maybe I'm one of them. Who knows? So it was, it was weird. Like, um, because I grew up in a very Christian context, and I had, I had used spiritual and religious language, sacred words with ease my whole life. And suddenly I was encountering people who they weren't working from the same script. Uh, they, words for them were triggering. They were awkward. They were weird. They were unknown. Maybe they didn't know the words that I was using and the meanings that I was ascribing to them. Or maybe they had, ha- they had encountered those words as sources of pain or judgment in their past. And it became this kind of tense thing to have spiritual conversations. And so I just stopped having them all together. What were some and, of those words that, that that were particularly triggering or people have weird thoughts about? Well, you can take just about, I mean, you take uh, probably one of the, the best examples of those words is, is a word like sin. People yeah. would say, yeah, I mean, do you believe in like all of that sin stuff? And it would just get stuck mm-hmm. in my throat. I didn't really know. Do you believe in that like sin and hell and judgment stuff is that kind of what your your thing is and it would just like i could no longer translate the ideas that that i had the feelings that i felt into the spaces where i was living and working and playing and so for me once i realized that wasn't just my experience which is shocking enough but that this was actually part of a cultural crisis 
that has been going on in American culture now for it looks like over half a century, I thought, okay, it's time to pick up the pen again and it's time to write the book, which has become learning to speak God from scratch. Yeah, as as a pastor in the South, I personally even struggle with the word sin because of how it's used in the mouths of my evangelical brothers and sisters. Like, yeah, I, I'm also... I'm, I'm, I find myself hesitant sometimes. Completely. Because yeah. it's like, but even in the South, it's like people, if you could say sin and grace and words like that, and right. everybody, they have a shared context, but to other culture parts of the country, those words are super loaded into some other way. Right. Yeah, like it's it's totally normal for evangelicals to refer to unbelievers as, yeah, well, I mean, we want some sinners to come to our church. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what the... Did yeah. you just say? <laughs> I, even think, I even think on the opposite side, it's really hard for me oftentimes to say the name Jesus. Like that one is just so, the name brother, of Jesus. Brother. Like it, it feels so uh, triggering or like it, there's so much baggage with the, that name that I feel like when I say that, it automatically means years of history and of American <laughs> church evangelicalism or something like that, as opposed to I'm talking about some, uh, a person I believe in and all this stuff this, yeah. the same way. Right. And, and, and every, every word's meaning is broken down kind of into two parts. You have the definition and the connotation. What mm-hmm. I found is, is that there are problems oftentimes on both sides. Like uh, I, I'm going to put out a series of videos where I go down to Times Square and ask people what different words mean. And nice. it's fascinating because you ask people what the word grace means and you get as many answers as you do people that you interview. So there's a problem with the definition. What does this mean? But then there's also that connotation problem, which is the feelings and experiences that we've attached to these. So you see someone standing next to Donald Trump who is uh, using certain words to talk about nuclear weapons or invading Iran or separating children from their parents at the border. And suddenly these words are packed with a level of toxicity. And uh, then you have people who claim to be Christian, you know, religious people in America, and they say, I don't want to be associated with these at all. I don't know what they mean anymore. And so I'm just going to stop having these conversations Mm -hmm. at all. Hey guys, sorry for the interruption, but I want to talk to you real quick about something that I have discovered. I don't know about you, but I actually never really gave sheets a whole lot of thought. Like bed sheets, I just thought bed sheets are bed sheets. You need them to cover up, and they're all bed sheets. And then I tried Brooklinen. Uh, it's brooklinen.com, and I realized, well, 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 there are bed sheets that blow other bed sheets out of the water. And I think a lot of people would agree because they're the fastest growing betting brand in the world with over 20,000 five-star reviews. That, I mean, that's pretty crazy. And, and so here's their mission. First of all, let me tell you this. They, they take out the middleman. I love businesses that do that. They keep things personal just between them and the customer. And their mission is to bring five-star hotel quality sheets to everyday life. I don't sleep in five-star hotels very often. In fact, I think maybe I have once. And I do recall the sheets being pretty awesome. And then when I got these Brooklyn and sheets, I was like, wow, this is good stuff and affordable. So they're luxury sheets without the luxury markup. Most bedding is marked up as much as 300%. That is, that is nuts. They take a small business approach from being run by husband and wife to being involved in every step of the manufacturing process to a customer service team that cares so much they remember customers by name. It's awesome. So my Brooklinen sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on. I mean... It's the honest truth. Brooklinen.com has given 
is giving an exclusive off offer just for our listeners, our Bad Christian listeners. You can get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so sure you'll love your new uh, sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code BADCHRISTIAN. Brooklinen, these really are the best sheets ever. Yeah, you say that that based on your research that only 7% of the population even have spiritual conversations? Yeah, so there's actually there's two there's twin a twin set of problems here. One is the decline of sacred words. So if you look at Google Ingram data, so Google has compiled all of the books and the magazine articles and the speeches and the blog posts and all of the kind of published literature going back to like the 1500s and you can search it. So you mm-hmm. can actually see how often words, the frequency of word usage over time. Right. What we've seen is, is that it, over about the last 50 years, we've seen a decline in almost every spiritual phrase and not just like big words like atonement, right? You, maybe you'd expect that to go down as, as cultures become more pluralistic, but even virtue words, words like courage, compassion, kindness, uh, the words included in what Christians call the fruit of the spirit, all of those are in decline by upwards of 50% or more in the English speaking world. Gee. So that's the first for it. That's the first sort of problem. And then I said, okay, I want to dig a step deeper. So I partnered with the, the Barna group, which some people may know, and I conducted mm-hmm. a survey of over a thousand Americans and said, how often do you have spiritual or religious conversations? And I was shocked because even though 70% plus of Americans say, I'm Christian. Only about 7% say they have a spiritual or religious conversation on even a once a week basis. And when you Crazy. look at practicing Christians, like church going Christians, that number is only 13%. So if you go to church and only the most faithful people show up that day, only about one and eight of those people sitting on your row feel confident enough to have a spiritual conversation even once a week. That's Gosh, terrible. That's insane. <laughs> wow, church is doing community really well. <laughs> well, well, that just goes too. I guess that just uh, shows the fact that then we're not even sharing our God or our faith. Even the people that are calling themselves Christians aren't even actually engaging in their faith or God, or it's, it's not maybe not even really that active. I guess. Yeah, that's right. And and the frustrating thing, or maybe I would say the confusing thing, is that it it raises all kinds of questions about the way we work as humans. I mean, the way that we're wired as human beings is, is that we're, we, are, we, we are designed, we are created to be speech creatures, to be rhetorical creatures. In other words, there is a connection between our mouths and our hearts. If I'm passionate about something, I will talk about that thing. Mm-hmm. If I love something, I'll talk about the thing. If I care about it, I talk about it. So it would be weird if you had like a friend or a coworker and you've known them for 10 years and one day you found out they were married and had three kids and you thought they were single. <laughs> You'd be like, do you not even yeah. care about right. we, We've had all these conversations. It's never come up because you, ought, you naturally assume that part of being human means speaking about articulating the things that you're passionate about. And yet so many Americans say, I am passionate about spirituality but we do not talk about that spirituality. And so what I wanted to do in the book is find out what is short-circuiting in us 
in 21st century America, why is it that we are passionate about and care about these things, but we cannot seem to articulate them with any regularity? And what, what do you find there? Like, what's, what's the barrier? Yeah, why aren't people having these conversations? Well, we, what we did was with Barna was we took all the people who said that they speak God infrequently and we asked them why. And we got a range of reasons. Some people said, well, you know what? Religious and spiritual words are too divisive. They cause mm-hmm. tensions. They cause arguments. You know, a lot of your listeners, you've, if you've been to a tense Thanksgiving, you can kind of understand why you wouldn't bring these things up. Some people say, I've been hurt by these words in the past. Some people say, you know, I've used these words so many times. They're hollow now. They're just a husk of a word. I don't even know what the word means anymore. I've used it and used it and used it, and I can't even tell you what it means. So if I don't know what a word means, if I don't comprehend it, then eventually I'll stop using it. Some people say I've been hurt by these words, that they've had a pastor or a friend or a parent who's used these words to oppress them or repress them or shame them or shun them. And, Uh, and, And those kinds of things have created this toxicity with language where they say, screw this. I am not using these words. They are just too fraught. That's the way I feel about the third thing that you said. There's like, I don't even know what this word means anymore. If I'm being honest, I I don't, I don't know if we are, who knows. So I just stopped using it. Among Christians. I think that is one, particularly among Christians who live in culturally Christian communities. That is the fact. Like I, I I had a uh, friend, I recount this conversation with my friend in the book where I had a friend who said to me, I said, so you're a Christian. What does that mean? She's from the South, from Alabama. She said, well, that means that I've accepted Jesus into my heart. And I said, well, what does that mean Mm. into your heart? Like into that, the muscle in your chest, you say you've, what does that mean? Like you're using that in kind of a metaphysical way. And she says, well, that means I've been saved. And I said, well, what does that mean that you've been saved? <laughs> right. And she says, well, that means that I've accepted God's gift of grace. And I said, what do you mean God's gift of grace? And she says, I'm a Christian. I accepted Jesus <laughs> in my heart. That's where we started. And like, come, are you a Christian? Yeah, we've, yeah. we've come full circle. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't even know what she means. It's language that she's used. But I always say, when, when I engage with people about this, I say, think about it for a minute. How often do you stop and ask yourself, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Most people don't. They never stop and and think, what do I mean when I say grace, when I say lost, when I say sin, when I say saved or salvation? In the South, you can use words like that. You go up to somebody and you say, hey, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I'm born again. Everybody kind of knows what yeah. you mean, but if you stop and ask somebody what that means, they can't tell just you. And the more that our culture club. becomes pluralistic, yeah. you're going to have to understand what these words mean or you're not going to use them anymore. Go ahead. Sorry about that. I mean, no, 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 that was, it was the opposite of that is what happened. Well, real, real quick. Do you describe yourself that way in conversation? And obviously this will play into a lot of your book. Like if someone said, Hey, Jonathan, what is it? You said you're a Christian. What is that supposed to mean? Yeah, I do. I, yeah. And it does play out in the book. I, yeah, I do. I do talk about, uh, I do talk that way. Uh, I have been able to regain confidence in the language of faith. But I think what it takes is, it takes not using language in kind of a kamikaze way, where you just sort of like throw words at people who may or may not even be interested in these conversations. It means inviting someone in. It means asking more questions than you're giving answers. It means wrestling in real time with these sorts of things. So if somebody says to me like, yeah, do you consider yourself a Christian? I would say, I do. And here's what I mean by that. And how do you understand that word? 
and we begin to have an actual conversation about it rather than just simply assaulting people with language that they may or may not be interested in in encountering. I'm talking about getting into real communities where people are seekers or speakers, and they're having deep conversations about not just what these words meant, but what these words should mean in our day. So I'm really arguing for an imaginative approach to language where we imagine new and better meanings for many of these words. Is the situation we're in anybody's fault or we just, it just happens with humans over time and language and being territorial or in whatever? I would be, you know, I'd be reticent to, to ascribe blame, although it's something that English speakers do a lot because it's a function of our language. We have active language. We prefer active tense. So uh, if you take out my Honda Civic and which I don't own uh, and wrap it around a tree, uh, I would say you wrecked my car. Other cultures would say, no matter what, they would say the car was wrecked. But because mm-hmm. our language naturally bends us toward blame, it's natural that we would say, who is at fault? But in many ways, this is, it's not really anyone's fault. It's a result of the world that we've created. Mm-hmm. We're children of Merriam Webster. So we have dictionaries, and, that, and <clears throat> having dictionaries that are ubiquitous uh, give us the impression that words have fixed meanings that are universal for all time. But that is not the way that language works. The the thing that keeps language alive is the ability for language and meanings of words to change Mm -hmm. over time. It happens throughout the text. If you look at the Bible, words are changing meaning as they're using from early biblical literature until later. We've stopped doing that. We've stopped reimagining that. So you go into a lot of fundamentalist circles, and they have fossilized their language. They put words in liquid amber. They say, don't question what I mean by salvation. This is a new Calvinist church. We figured that out. We don't question what salvation means. Don't question the words that we use to talk about God or whether we can use this pronoun or that pronoun. We've already locked this down. This is set. This is set in stone. It can't be changed. We can't reimagine what that word means for us. That is not the way that language works. If you talk to linguists, and there's a whole bunch of linguistics in this book, every linguist agrees, language will either change or it will die. It will either trend toward evolution or it will trend toward extinction, and there are no exceptions. Awesome. So, so people's knee-jerk reaction to that is, well, you can't change the truth. How does not cha- How does changing the meaning of words not change what the Bible is trying to... Them, uh, well, if you if there. you believe that the Bible uh, contains some uh, element of truth, then you really have now put yourself at odds with the sacred text. I'll give you an example. You take the word sin, and I have a whole chapter on this. If you look at sin in the biblical context, it is morphing in meaning over time. From the earliest Old Testament writings, yeah. it's it's spoken about one way in Temple Judaism, another way, and by the time the New Testament comes out, it's it's birthed a new a new meaning. Here's a great example: the the way that sin is talked about in in Temple Judaism is as a weight. Sin is a heavy weight that's placed on your shoulders; it weighs you down, and it is communal. It's not individual. It's not like the I my shoulders are heavy. It's our shoulders as a community. So as a result, I don't need to ask God for forgiveness as an individual. The community has to make amends. So what do we do? Every year we come together, Yom Kippur, we place our hands on the scapegoat, 
the weight of our sin is imparted to the scapegoat. We chase it out of town. The weight is lifted off the community. But over time, as the community makes their own missteps, the weight descends again, and we have to do another scapegoat. And there's this cycle that as a communal nature, the weight of sin has to be lifted. The New Testament has almost no concept of that. That concept has totally faded uh, from the rhetoric of the New Testament. By the time the New Testament comes along, Jesus and Paul, they begin to speak of, of sin as a debt. So when Paul says, for example, the wages of sin is death, if, if you put Paul in a time machine, temple the people who are practicing temple Judaism would not have had any, they would have said, what the heck are you talking yeah. about? The wages of sin is death. And they, they would have no concept of sin as a debt that is owed sort of cosmically and that you as an individual, you sort of have your own proto bank account, if uh -huh. you could sort of conceive of it that way. Jesus even takes this concept, this first century concept further and sort of says, well, wait, if sin is a debt in a bank account, maybe if we can withdraw from that, maybe we can deposit into that. So Jesus says things like uh, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, right? This is very weird language. And yeah. it's not like that was a, a metaphor that was present hundreds of years earlier. It didn't exist. By the time you end the New Testament, you see all kinds of different concepts of sin uh, being birthed again. So you walk into a lot of these churches that claim to preach the capital T truth, and they'll say, we have a sin problem. A problem solution framework is not a biblical notion. They'll say, You're, we have a, we're sin sick. We have a sin sickness. Yeah. Not, you, you will find no clinical language uh, ascribed to sin uh, in either the Old or the New Testament. So we're we're even today talking about sin in ways that are, you might call, post-biblical. But even <laughs> if sure. you say, what is <laughs> the awesome. biblical conception of sin, I would have to say, in which period? So you're because saying there you're... are many different conceptions of sin, and the same is true if you look at all kinds of other words in the Bible. They are constantly morphing, and by the time it ends, of course, you see Jews engaging in Midrash, the New Testament is this kind of imaginative midrash reinterpreting the words that they were given from the Old Testament. But for some reason, in post-Enlightenment Western culture, following the rise of dictionaries in the 1700s, we have now become very uncomfortable with treating language the way language should be treated. So I want, I want to tell some of these people that attribute like sickness to sin and everything, hey, that is very progressive of you. You're, you're a good progressive and really piss them off. Well, like you said, sin or talking about everybody that isn't a Christian in your church, people that aren't Christians, like people that we want to come to the church and just referring to them as sinners is post-biblical, right? Like mm. it is post-biblical entirely. It's just a whole new yeah, way of I thinking. I love the idea what you're talking about there too, even with the Old Testament. I always thought it was... I love the language of God will make you a nation or the people. It was always, like you said, the weight was across the board. So it was more, uh, it's all of us together. Like I, I feel that way too. Like I don't, I, I do hate the, the personal relationship stuff where it's me and my sin and you have your sin and it's all separate. But I do think some of this language, do you think some of that has to do with how politicized it is? Are people scared to use these words because they're going to get caught? Like if you use the word grace, they'll say, well, you sure weren't graceful with the immigrants or something like, like, do you think our politics, do you think politics is playing into some of what, what's happening today? Yeah. You know, in the surveys we conducted, one of the most uh, prominent answers we got for why don't you have these conversations more often is that the language has become too political. And by that, people mean partisan, that they hear people mm -hmm. making stump speeches and they're using this language to campaign, to speak to a particular uh, voting block. 
a religious yep. voting block, an evangelical voting block, a Christian voting block, the Christian left as a voting block. And it feels sort of politically manipulative. And as a result, they go, you know, both opponents and supporters will say, yeah, I, I'm just not comfortable with this anymore because they, they're they not trying to always express something partisan when they use this language. They want to use this language to express a deep uh, reality of the inner life, but it feels like they're expressing something political. Because it's just cheap and so It's been, you know, utilized and, and signaled and, and what do they call it? Dog whistling and all that kind of crap. Yes. Yeah. They become dog whistles. Right. Exactly. Things that, things that other, a great example of this, if you go back to, you remember um, George W. Bush, George W. Bush wrote a book when he was running for president called A Charge to Keep. And it sounds like a great leadership book title, but it's actually the title of a song, a very popular hymn in the United Methodist hymnal. So for everybody else, it was just kind of cool leadership language, but it was a subtle dog whistle to people who grew up in certain Christian circles to say, ah, this guy is one of us. Right. And people on the left and the right do this. Barack Obama has done this. Uh, Bill Clinton did this perhaps as much as any president in the modern era, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush. It, it is not a left-right issue. It's an American political tradition. So, so getting back to your book, too, as well, and the language, wh why is it so important that we are using uh, this vernacular? We're using, we're going back to using some of these words. Like e Even for you, like in New York City, why is it important to you? Yeah, brilliant question. Uh, that was that the sort of this whole project begs that question. OK, so now, Jonathan, you've done this research. You've got the data. Sacred language is dying. Spiritual conversations are dying in the English speaking world. So what? Who cares? Does that yeah. does that matter? Well, it does matter. Uh, and I spent about a year studying linguistics when I was doing this, and I was shocked to find that there is this emerging body of research now in linguistics that shows a, an airtight connection between the languages that we speak, the words that we, that we use, and the thoughts that we think. And the thoughts that we think and the behavior patterns that we exhibit. So I'll give you an example. In the English-speaking world, I've already talked about ascribing blame, right? Mm -hmm. So the, if, you, if you grew up speaking English, you are more likely to ascribe blame than if you grew up speaking a language with uh, a, a, a predominant passive tense. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? If you, if you compare our justice systems and our laws, Cultures that have uh, heavily active tensed language will have stricter laws that focus on punishing mm -hmm. the offending party. That's just, it's a function of our language because we talk a certain way, we think a certain way, and our behavior patterns, even our laws, reflect that. Another great example is, is that English, English is a futured language. So I can say, I've got to go on the Bad Christian Podcast tomorrow. I will go on that podcast. It is a future tense. But not all languages have a future tense. Many of them just use a single tense, Chinese, for example, and you have to sort of intuit what's happening or when it's happening based on the context. Well, why does that matter? Because we speak a futured language, our brains now are wired to think about the future more than a language that's not futured. When you compare a futured culture to a non-future speaking culture, you find that we smoke less, we practice uh, more wow. safe sex, we will save wow. more by and large uh, for retirement, our behavior patterns and our thought patterns are totally different 
because of the words we use. Why does that matter? Because if you believe that these inner life, these realities, these spiritual realities are important, then the language we use is important. If we refuse to talk about God, to talk about faith, to talk about courage, to talk about compassion, we will be less attuned to transcendent realities. We won't think about God or faith or courage or compassion. And as a result, our lives, our social patterns, our culture will be less conformed to those realities. We won't be courageous people. We won't be kind people. Shit. We won't be compassionate people. And so when you see the way our culture is changing, what many people have never done is make the connection that the language that we speak is often contributing to these huge sweeping cultural changes. It's not just some sense of moral decline or moving to the end of the world. It's actually a function of the words that we're using and the words that we're refusing to use. Do you think this is like, I mean, are you predicting that the spiritual language is going to, is on the decrease? That's a trend? Like where, where is that it is, it is absolutely a trend. And I think that if nothing is done, it will die in the 21st century. Now, when I say die, what does that mean? Does that mean that no one will ever use the word salvation? No, I think people will use a word like sin to refer to molten chocolate cake or saved to <laughs> their, their 401k. It will die in the way that the, that the Latin language has died or the, or Syriac or, you know, a lot of these languages that are now only spoken in liturgical contexts. Mm -hmm. So we will go to those are the few of us who still go to church. We'll go to church. You'll hear and you'll speak those words and you'll just leave those words at church. You know, nobody, nobody goes to the Catholic church. They're sort of pre-Vatican to Catholic church. They hear the Latin and they leave and they start speaking, you know, Latin out in, in their everyday life. They've left that language. That language is now restricted to kind of these ritualistic environments. That is the future that we are trending toward when it comes to sacred speech and if you care about culture and if you think that the realities that these words point to are important, then I think that you have to recognize that this is a massive cultural crisis. Gee, yeah. well, wow. this is definitely even more motivation to read your book. Thank you for sending it. I wasn't able to read it before this, but this not every time someone sends me a book, I'm like, I got to read this. And this is just so, so interesting. It's called Golly. Learning to Speak God from scratch and so this yeah. book it'll be out in august on 14th on august 14th so you're asking yeah. people what do you like them to do amazon pre-order well i would say i would say yeah order it wherever you want to order it i would tell people our conversation has focused on the first half of the book uh -huh. but the second half of the book you will get 20 essays on words like pain and disappointment and sin and lost and grace and what i do in the second half of the book is i spent uh, a year and a half reimagining all the all of my least and most favorite words in the vocabulary of faith. Mm -hmm. And so I hope what people will do is, is they'll find some really interesting nuggets there so that they will at least see modeled for them what it would look like uh, to do this in their own lives. And there's, of course, there's an appendix called A How-To Guide for Seekers and Speakers, where I break it down and say, here, if you want to be a part of the revival of sacred speech, here is a five-step process for how you do that in your PTA group, in your small group, around your kitchen table, et cetera. So that's really what I hope. They will, I hope people will, will get the concept, yes, but I hope that this will in some way spark a movement. Yeah, I'm way into all of it. I'm right. I think the importance of language and that people are not paying attention to how much it changes. I'm, I'm very excited to get in this uh, book. Do you got a few minutes to tell us about your recent prophetic experience? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Uh, 
So that's so interesting. You know, talk about <laughs> saying things that are unpopular. Uh, I tweeted about this. I was uh, I was invited to go down to TBN Studios here in New York. There, mm -hmm. There's some studios for TBN that are located right off of Union Square. And I was joining uh, Eric Metaxas and uh, Megan Alexander. Megan is uh, a correspondent for Inside Edition. And there was basically, there's a, a faith-based movie that was being released uh, nationwide. And after the movie, they're gonna show this kind of Q&A where we talk about questions that the film raises. So I went down there to film that and uh, I was sitting in hair and makeup and this woman was doing my makeup and she said, can I pray for you? And I said, yeah, yeah, you can pray for me, whatever. And uh, she said, well, before I do, you know, I'm a prophet. <laughs> and I have a word from God for you. And I'm a I'm pretty resistant to that sort of yeah, thing. But I yeah. was, you know, if somebody says something like that to me, I'll smile. And typically people <laughs> will give you kind of some general word about something that yeah. can apply to anybody. Were you surprised? Like, did you think you were in a safe zone that you weren't gonna get this? You know, I was kind of already in TBN mode, right? That's so, right, that's right. right. I forgot know. TBN. Yep, um, yep. <laughs> Uh, so I thought, yeah, whatever. This is not weird for it's weird if that had happened in Union Square, but right. not at TBN Studios. So I said, yeah, go go ahead, shoot. And um, she began to recount. I'd had a very difficult conversation with a friend the day before, and I was trying to decide whether I should do this thing or not in the coming months. And she said, it's time to do this thing. And she said, uh, God was with you yesterday when you were wrestling through this. Oh, and man. he was he was in that conversation. And I had lost sleep over it. I was trying to take a nap that day in my bed uh, or the day before that in my bed. And I couldn't sleep. I'd lay there for like three hours trying to take a nap. And I was just filled with anxiety. And she said, I I'm catching a vision of you and you're in your bed and you can't sleep. And your your pillows are drenched in tears and worries. And the spirit of God is sitting on the edge of your bed and telling you, don't worry about this, that I'll bring you rest, that uh, I will help you to sleep. So you don't have to worry about this. Like God has this. God's got you. You, you can let all of that go. It's time to do this. And it was, and of course I'm bawling. Yeah. You know, I'm not even a crier, but I was like just bawling because this was a moment where I thought it's very weird. If you're a person like me, it's very weird to have an experience uh, for which the supernatural is actually the most logical explanation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, what you mean. Right. That, that's right. right? Yeah. So uh, it's like actually the most logical explanation in this in this scenario is that God actually exists and that the spirit of God is is active and living and speaking. Because the only other thing would be what? Um uh, this woman was a an operative for the CIA, and they've right. been following me around and taping my. Con I mean, what is the, uh, the it's just uh, a good a, a random guess? <laughs> Could be a good. Right. I mean, but that's pretty right. low odds too. And, and and even still, what would the CIA care about this conversation? And <laughs> right. why would they implement this woman in my life? The the most logical explanation is that God really is real, and God really is active, and the Spirit of God really is speaking, and had a message for me that if if. And that God so wanted me to hear this, that God sent someone with a crystal clear message that I could not challenge to make sure I got it, that I didn't doubt it, and that I would step into it. 
So she just she self identifies as a prophet. That is so weird. Like I mean, was it done in a showy way? Because in my unhealthy background, that is all too common. It's just like, look at me, I'm prophesying. Or was it done in a super humble spirit? No, it was very quiet and humble. There was nobody around. Uh, It was her and the makeup assistant. Um, and they, they prayed for me and that was that. And, and were, I never heard from him again. And wow. were you speechless or did you say like, I cannot believe the stuff that you said? Like, did you acknowledge how big of a deal it was? Yeah. Afterwards. So she said, I couldn't speak at first. I was just crying and I was trying to kind of keep it together. Cause I'm crying my makeup off. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, this is going to be weird. Uh, and so she reapplies my makeup. And then I said, I kind of got my composure and I said, look, you're, you had no way of knowing this let me tell you the backstory. And when I told her the backstory, she was as shocked as I was. I mean, she was, she couldn't believe it because you could tell, you know, I I actually talk about this in my book, in the chapter on prayer. There are like all these brain scans that they're now doing while people engage in spiritual practices. And when people speak in tongues, for example, the part of the brain that's activated is the passive part, not the active part. So neuroscience is now showing that when you're expressing charismatic gifts, which is not something I have ever been a part of personally, but when you're expressing charismatic gifts, it's not something you're doing. It's something you're passively letting happen to you. And it seemed to be in this situation that this was something that had happened to this woman, that she was just a conduit for it. And when she realized how substantial the thing was that passed through her, she was as shocked as I was to receive it. Now, I think this is, we got to let you go here, but I I think it's probably a dumb question, but is that a life-changing faith moment to where you'll always reference back to? Because if that were to happen to me in this season of life, it would definitely be kind of like a rekindling. And and also, to add to that, as the farther you get away from it, does it feel like, well, maybe this, are you trying to like think of it logically, like maybe it wasn't spiritual? That's what happens sometimes in people's lives too, like... No, uh, I, the people that I, the, you know, the people that I'd had the conversation with the day before I came home and I immediately talked to them and said, you're not going to believe what happened. And they were just shocked, floored. Uh, it was that significant. I think if, if somebody had said, I see you and you're lifted up and God's going to give you favor. And it was all very general. I never would have tweeted about it. I never would have shared about it. I said, well, I hope that's true. That sounds like that could be cool. (laughs) But it was so specific that uh, it was unchallengeable. Mm -hmm. So I haven't questioned it after the fact. And I would say that it's been life altering because uh, I'm going to do the thing that she said I need to do that I think I believe God said I need to do. Uh, and I'm going to do that thing. So it's going to change the course of my life in that way. Well, Jonathan, I'm continually impressed with your, you know, willingness to tell the truth wherever it takes you, wherever it leads you. That's just so evident. We need more people like that. I hope everybody will get into your book and start following you. Just your Twitter and your work of the Southern Baptist Convention is just so such good, trustworthy work. And I, I learned so much from listening to you. I recommend everybody pay attention to Jonathan Merritt, Learning to Speak God from Scratch is the book. And then tell them about your podcast that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, I'll be launching a a podcast called the Seekers and Speakers podcast, where I'll be basically taking various Christian thinkers and leaders and speakers and authors and each week focusing in on one word and reimagining what that word could mean in our day and for us. I think that's going to be it's going to be an interesting little project. It's just a little short mini podcast. It'll run about six weeks and 
I think it's going to be fascinating. Now, are, you awesome. st- are you still doing the faith angle? The faith angle, which I do with Kirsten Powers from CNN, we'll, uh, we'll do, we've got a phone call actually after this to start planning out season two, which hopefully will launch sometime later this year. We'll start recording that. So yes, we are planning to do uh, another season of that coming up, but we've got to we got to plan it out first. Right. Well, hey, thank you for the impact, honestly, that you've even made on us. Like, we are definitely listening and reading your tweets, and uh, you're a helpful person in our lives. So, appreciate yep. it. Thanks, thank Jonathan. You guys, I appreciate it. Man, Jonathan, Mary, I tell you, I I promise you, this sounds uh, terrible and obnoxious. I almost hate him because he's so good. <laughs> he is so good and articulate. Like, I just think, man, I just wish I could. He really does thread the needle perfectly of I'm going to uh, think about God and uh, my faith logically and also passionately, right. also uh, in a way that's encouraging and real and honest and trustworthy. And and I feel like when I try to do any of those things, it just sounds like a just terrible, loudmouth, awful person. And I think that's true. Yeah, I, He's I think, just great. I think for me, too, it highlights just the importance of, uh, this is going to sound churchy as hell, fellas, but just fellowship and community. And and here's no, and here's why. Like that was very faith strengthening to hear that. And I still want to be a Christian and I am a Christian. And to like hear just his angle on things, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm stuck with you, bozos, all the time, and y'all bring me down. I, I may not be a Christian because of you two. It is very interesting how cool <laughs> this podcast has opened up doors for people that I did not know before, yeah. and now like I respect and think are just great thinkers yeah. in this whole realm. That the we're, million dollar we're, question: Why in the hell does he associate with us? I know. <laughs> I'm scared to death at any moment. That I, like, no, be, that's that's obvious. I mean, that's just got to be more obvious than than it, it seems. It's people. It, it's really people and that's what we need to focus on putting this next conference together is people that you can agree with and disagree with well and like be able to simply do it and respect like the idea that you want to understand the other person's point of view even if and even if you disagree with it that is just so obvious when you encounter it it's just so obvious when people are being honest in that way like wait let me see if i can understand what you're saying and that's totally fine to yeah. to disagree yeah. You know, and he's he's in that category, and doesn't want to be bullied by people and controlled, and that's what it, that's just kind of what's all about. So you you can feel that when right. when you run into it. Right. I tell you, there's one thing you can't disagree with, and that's the truth. Never can you disagree. With all the truth. right, but well, we did twist the scripture already, and yep. I brought the truth. That was good. I really appreciate that. But you're saying there's a only so much your cup of truth is filled. Uh, I think I think it's a little low. Okay, kick it. In a world where you know, even on your own podcast, you're not the best journalist that was on it today. <laughs> My name is Toby Morrell. This is the damn news. I mean, that's kind of an understatement. I'm sorry. I mean, sorry. Kind of an Definitely a better journalist than me, for sure. But like, like, I bring news. You don't even have to say that. I bring People the know. news, though. I bring it. I bring truth. And this okay. one comes from Bloomberg. If you meet people in public and ask you what you do, you ever say, Journalist, yeah, I say news, news, <laughs> news journalist. I should start saying that at parties yeah, just, and stuff. At least it'll get you out of having yeah, to say I, I do a podcast or I'm in a screen. Yeah, I'm just a journalist. Man. Oh, really? Where do you work for? Then I had to say the damn news. So then I don't <laughs> the know. damn news. Uh, an alternative news outlet. Yeah, an alternative news outlet. I don't really like to talk I don't about like it. Talk shop yeah, yeah. at parties. Anyway, but... what do you do for a living? 
Um, this comes from Bloomberg, and I I just thought this is really interesting. And and this feels like uh, when I read this article, I was like, this is like Matt's dream article here. <laughs> um, and so it, this, this article is about you, y'all. Y'all heard the big news now that they say you got to get rid of straws. Straws are oh, causing gosh. pollution, oh, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, it's really bad, gosh. really crazy. And then there's some a lot of pushback on s- certain different groups of people. Like, wait a minute, this you know uh, we might need it, but this is what was inter- really interesting to me. Like I said, it comes from Bloomberg. Uh, Real and- quick, Matt, thumbs up or thumbs down with stop using straws? No, you can't explain. Yes or no? St- Advocate? It's just way too complicated. Now, here's here's the only thing I'll All tell right, you. Never mind, Toby. He he can give a nuanced answer later. Uh, New York's top cocktail bars are facing something of a crisis. A fashionable global protest movement has nightlife venues scrambling to replace their pr- plastic straws with more sustainable alternatives such as paper ones, uh, which on on the theory that doing so will reduce plastic waste in oceans. And it all sounds virtuous, but in reality, it might not be. The anti-straw movement took off in 2015 after a video of a sea turtle with a straw stuck in its nose, went viral. Campaigns soon followed with activists citing studies of the growing ocean plastic problems, intense media interest in the so-called Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which I've heard isn't maybe even real or something. I don't know. Uh, a floating franchise only heightened the concern. Maybe it is true. Uh, but this well-intentioned campaign assumes that single-use plastics, uh, such as straws and coffee stirrers, have much to do with ocean pollution. And that assumption is based on some highly dubious data. Activists and news media often claim that uh, Americans use 500 million plastic straws per day, uh, for example, which sounds awful. But the source of this figure turns out to be a survey conducted by a nine-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Run with it. One so, picture of a turtle and something a nine-year-old said. We right. can beat the whole world up. With uh, it. Similarly, Give two, people laws. Okay. two Australian scientists estimate that there are up to 8.3 billion plastic straws scattered on the global coastlines. Yet even if all those straws were suddenly washed onto the sea, uh, washed into the sea, they'd account for about 0.03% of the 8 million metric tons of plastics estimated to enter the oceans. In other words, skipping a plastic straw on your next Bahama Mama may feel conscientious, but it won't make a dent in the garbage patch. So, And it goes on to talk about some different things. It, it's basically just saying, we're missing the point here. We're doing this thing because it's trendy. Get rid of the straws, and I did something. We definitely need to do something with our – we do have a plastic problem. I believe that. That is true. We do have a a garbage and trash uh, problem, but when it turns into the silly stuff, that's what hurts. I I believe that's what hurts the message so much. It dilutes it because then – you hear real numbers, and anybody on the right goes, see, you told me to get rid of my straw. Screw you. It's not. And they're missing the point. Let's really get to the real issue. What is the real problem? That, let's start with the biggest thing, just like Dave Ramsey plan. Start with your, your big dad or whatever. Knock that down. Knock that down. Or, or uh, Maybe that's his plan. I'm not exactly sure how. Joey, you might know more of that. Big, big things first. This little peripheral stuff. Why are we focusing so much on that when it won't? Like, If we get rid of all the straws, it's not even going to hardly make a dent. Uh, I, listen. I happen to know a lot about this topic because <laughs> in Seattle, it's a big debate right now. So really? if you just turn on KUOW, the yeah. NPR station, they talk about it a lot. Sales happens a lot of crazy stuff. But we have very aggressive recycle, compost, plastic use. Very aggressive. We don't have uh, plastic grocery bags. Right. They're not allowed to even exist. They're gone. Yeah. Like you can't, they don't exist. You can't get them. Wow. Um, and um, straws are now gone. Like they've Most places have switched, but the rest will be switched soon. You can only have straws if they're paper compostable. Right. So we're way into that. Um, and so I've been, I, 
it's also what I was talking about when I did a climate change science segment a while ago. The problem here, here is this absolutely uncritical thinking, and it's a weird, it's just this really, really weird thing. But where I'd like to start on it is to say the environment is a big deal, but really it's almost settled more by just thinking about practicality, efficiency, and waste, which are huge for me. Like I'm obsessed with things being efficient and practical and working well, and I can't stand waste, regardless of its environmental impact. Yeah, It's so crazy when you see things that are wasted. So if anybody out there would like to buy a metal straw and use it all the time, I give that person a giant hug for being a practical, pragmatic, non-wasteful, do some. I love that. I love it when people when when coffee shops have real spoons instead of wood things. That it's just so dumb that that had to be harvested and shipped and put there and go there and you take it. You grab four of them and you just stir your coffee and throw them out and never think about it. Instead of just use a spoon and wipe it off with a rag. Right. Or why I don't even right. use napkins. I wipe my hands on my jeans all day every day because I don't even like to use napkins. <laughs> right. But I'm not worried about that shit ending up in the ocean. Right. That's not what happens to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's nonsense. This is this is the this is the thing where people and this is what I put in the anti-human category. This is in the category of people that love to feel guilty about being alive, right. and I hate it. We, I hate it. We didn't say anything about teachers, but go ahead. You're a little so it, it's it's the, it's the mentality that says, and we're the drain on this planet, <laughs> and it's just anything you could right. use as proof of that. You're going to try and make a bunch of stuff and politics at it, and it's it's happened over and over in history. If you trace it, but nobody pays attention, there'll be an iconic viral image. There was one about as this tanker of trash in the '80s. They got all this, and all these policies came out of this one tanker of trash going up and down the East Coast. Same thing. If you hear there's an island of plastic in the Pacific, you're listening. Because that sounds so horrible, and it is right. that you're whatever the next person says next, you're going to go. So we got to do that. It's horribly manipulative, exploitive, non-practical. Doesn't maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but you're a sitting duck for one real strong image of an orphan that's starving to death. Right. If you thought you could help that, you would. You would every time. Everybody would. That's natural. But that doesn't mean it was the best way to do it or how it works. And it's just a it's just a negative mess. They'll take a nine year old's research and a picture of a turtle with a straw, and now we've got all these government governments and local governments and regulation and all this stuff. And I just, I mean, seriously, think about the plastic island in the ocean. Terrible. That seems like very misuse of the planet yeah. to me. And I said it before, but your shit is not in that. It's mo- largely from other countries that you can't control. Right. And it's certainly not people who drink lattes in Seattle or a Mai Tai with a straw and throw it in the trash can. How does that get in the ocean? Please tell me. Please tell me. If you throw your straw in the trash can, how does it end up in the ocean? Right. I'm serious. How? I mean, do you have an? Is it? There would, how? Have, there would have to be some sort of waste company that uses the ocean okay, to well, dispose well, of trash, which yeah, but that's exist. not what the the <laughs> unbelievable, careful, recycling, compost, massively regulated recycling industry in Seattle does when you throw something in a trash can. Right. They don't go dump it in the ocean. All right. That's not how it works. Well, also, I, that's why I was trying to remember that patch. What did I had read read about? It is real, but even National Geographic wrote about this this year. That great, great Pacific garbage patch isn't what you think. It's not all bottles and straws. It's actually mostly industrial aban- commercial waste aban- from the Philippines. Aban- is what it's no, be. it's abandoned fishing gear. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's this the stuff that I mean. There's there's that's, other that's stuff. That's what I said. That, yeah, that's yeah, what right. that would be. Right. So I mean, it's it's stuff that will. 
People, that's what the, the problem with everything is. It's just some trendy thing where you go, we did this and we feel good about ourselves. That's right. And then nothing actually happens. Now, you don't actually cure the problem, which needs to be cured. I'll give you one more example is I was listening to a radio show in Seattle about the straw thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the, somebody, the host tried to um, ask that question to the lady who was just, you know, just saying about the, and then the host of the show was like, yeah, so how, uh, how does that stuff ever end up in the ocean? And uh, or does that our trash end up in the ocean? You go well, it gets there somehow, and it's moved. On. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I was like, whoa! And then it didn't matter; it just moved. On. I was like, oh! And uh. then, then, then somebody else said, but actually, and somebody else brought up the point about the uh, that would it might actually not really help is the volume because we have other problems. And and they said this, but it's a little bit painful every time you don't have a straw, and it's a little bit painful for you when you have to pay more money, and it's a little bit painful when you have to use a compostable straw. It's bad, and that's good for us because then it'll just remind us that we need to take better care. Oh, so it's literally just to be a penalty on us for existing, and right. that's we want to be pay, caused pain right. and have be regulated and no, pay how, money uh, yeah. because we deserve it. And so that's that's as if that right. shit like that is going to make people and, be more environmentally responsible. And once again, who no, does it hurt? It actually hurts the poor, the marginalized. That's right. who gets hurt the most. It also hurts the environment because right. people go, "This is fucking bullshit." Right? Yeah. Right. Yes. So obviously, maybe yeah. the whole thing's bullshit, and climate change isn't real, but it is. So you're messing it up. Man, <laughs> get Matt riled up, boy. Gosh. I can't stop thinking about the turtle that just doesn't know how to take a But that one turtle, though. <laughs> it is sad. Y'all saw that where they had to pull it out, but, I mean, he was fine. So you think, you think you'd rather have a – so you're willing to suffer, to kill a turtle painfully to, so you can have your Mai Tai? Huh? Of course not. Is that, is that our choice? I know. It's just it, – that the, the the I hate – the guilt culture that we live yes. in too of like, come on, man. I mean, nobody when they are drinking from their straws thinking, fuck the world. Nobody's ever thought that when drinking a straw. You just thought a straw helps me do this thing. Now, if we can logically get rid of straws and it makes sense and it doesn't hurt people and all the, uh, the world and all that stuff, I'm okay with that too. But why focus on the dumb thing when you should focus on the bigger issues? Like if it really is uh, in, industrial fishing uh, right. equipment, stuff like that, Automatic let's global think about that. To regulate Southeast right. Asia's fishing. Right. Let's do that then. If you're worried about the place. Yeah. Oh, well, we can't but do we, that. We, we, uh, first of all, it, just say, I said the Philippines. I think that's probably true. China. I mean, you can't, right. you can't, you're not even going to talk about that. Right. Nope. Doesn't matter? Just, just us. And, I mean, if, no, we, it, yeah. if we eliminated everything, the alt-right if you did, if you does did all the polluting, every, everything that. that Al Gore said, I think it would make almost no impact on the earth, which is really I, I don't. I don't necessarily follow that. That what? All the things that Al Gore said in his, uh, what's the movie or whatever? Inconvenient Truth. Inconvenient Truth. If just, if just America did that, I think it's like the weirdest, lowest percentage, like point zero zero something of actual climate change help that we well, might do. Well, it's certainly true that America is not the worst but, so, of the yeah, yeah, problem right. of polluting and, and carbon and, emission or anything. But people but, right now are like, yeah, but that doesn't mean don't try. I agree. Of course. Of course that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is why would we do all this stuff, tax everybody, hurt the marginalized, hurt the poor the poor class, not affect the the rich at all, if that's what you're always complaining about, and uh, not really do anything? Why well, wouldn't we focus on things there, that do change the world technology and for it. climate how about better? That? There's technology to create uh, bacteria and microbes that eat plastic. Right. How about we just work on that with the money? I know. Stuff like I know. that. I mean, I don't know. Instead of hurting ourselves, anyway. Well, man, my, that, my news got fired up. I think that's about all the time we got on the damn. Now. I was gonna. I had another story. I'll save it for next time. That is the damn it, man, man. I'm. You got emotional. <laughs>
Well, thanks, Toby, for getting uh, something. I like to talk. Man, you got emotional. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of myself on that, for sure. <laughs> well, let's talk about the BC Club before we get out of here. Yeah, well, these people just joined. Let me read their names. Names. And I'm so excited that I would like to say a, a nice cuss word in between each one, like celebrating them, if that's okay. A nice cuss word between their first and last name? No, between their names. Each, oh, okay. each person's name, if that's right. okay with you. So All these right. are people that have just joined the BC Club. They went to thebcclub.com, where you do pay some money that supports this podcast, but the bigger picture being they're now part of our you know, global community, friends, yeah. I, I, family. We, we used to say that, and I thought it was a stretch. Not anymore. It's just what it is. Yeah. Not anymore. It yeah. really is yeah. a global community. That sounds so cool a glo- yeah. that we didn't start. We started the BC Club. We didn't start the community. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's true. I mean, it that's just, just a natural amen. byproduct. It, amen. Preach it. it. You, Jesus started would it. You, yes. I would say more of it evolved. Like, yeah. That was intelligent design yeah, versus... Don't, yeah, don't bring that Like You're saying in. we didn't intelligently design it, right? We didn't it, create exactly. it? Exactly. It was evolution. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, our first person is Luke, Luke Wyeth Davis. Schnooker dookies. Maris Autry. Oh, fudge nuggets. Brandon T. Autry. Cheese and rice. Are they married? Wow. Justin Finger. Caesar's ghost. Brian Collins. (laughs) Merlin's beard. Reed Sowell. Dagnabbit. Brad Cecil. Fiddlesticks. Campbell Shelton. Banana shenanigans. And Surge. God bless America. (laughs) Do all those have a... um a direct connotation, or some of them just are harsh sounding. You think? Yeah, I think like, they're just yeah, yeah. It's some just of harsh, them are like yeah. fudge. What fudge nuggets? And fudge nuggets. Cheese supposed and to rice. Be, yeah, like it's supposed to be Jesus or fuck yeah. this. Or whatever, but some of them are just they sound strong. Yeah, you're I right. Like did, did you know I was I was told by someone at my church not to even say dang because it represents damn. Yeah, parents yeah. of evil or something, right? Yep. <laughs> my favorite one right, is is if you get really upset, and I do it sometimes now. I don't know where I got it because I thought it was funny, but now I say it all the time. If I get real mad at a kid or something, God dang it. I just quit and say, oh, yeah. it's, 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 it's just God dang it. It makes it, it feels the meanest thing I can say when I'm the most frustrated. If I squint my dick, dang it, it just makes me mad. I yeah. used to get in real trouble uh, if I said sucks. Like, if I said something sucks, oh, my gosh. But yeah, that I mean, is bad, though. I mean, well, that but not has for, a, But not for a kid. Like, for me, I just thought it was like, sucks the life out yeah, of you. It's just parents, a bad situation. Our parents always heard it as sucks dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what, you know what I'm saying? It might even be homophobic in origin, I suppose. Now it's I mean, not. Now, yeah. now pastors say suck. Right from the that's pulpit. Some filthy yeah. shit they can say. They yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so next time you're at church and the pastor's wrapping up, he's like, you know what? We gotta be. It sucks, but we gotta be out of here at one. I need everybody help move the chairs, everything. You just say, "What? Sorry, I'm not familiar with that term. What do you mean? It sucks dick. <laughs> it sucks dick, and we gotta be out of here. Is that what you mean?" <laughs>